If you're looking for success, it's in the details. Small hinges move big doors. And now your host, Karen Allen. Hey friends, welcome back to another episode of In The Details. I'm your host, Karen Allen. Welcome to today's show where we're going to talk to Dr. Eugene Choi. And I am excited for this conversation because you know that I live in the world of neuroplasticity and our all-powerful brain. And to talk to someone else who is also in this space who loves it as much as I do is an absolute treat for me. So Dr. Eugene, thanks so much for joining us. How are you today? Thanks so much for having me. I'm super excited to be here. Uh, if you had one word to describe how your week is going, what would that one word be? Full, very, very full. Uh, yeah, I'm living a very full life. Three kids, got the business I'm running. Yeah, speaking, stuff like that. Yes, good. I, I actually like how you use the word full and not like busy or hectic or overwhelmed, which you probably feel all of those things too, especially. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But, but that's, that's beautiful. I love to hear that. Well, listen, I know that by the end of this episode, our listeners are going to feel full from the richness of this conversation, but I find it, I'm always surprised, maybe less surprised as we continue these conversations. And I love that more people are talking about neuroplasticity and the fascination of neuroscience, but I am surprised when I meet somebody who loves it as much as me. And I will tell you based Mm -hmm. on your content, I can tell you love it as much as I do, but for me, I stumbled into it. You know, it's not like I knew that I wanted to study this. I actually growing up, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I just knew I was good at talking. So I majored in communication. I guess that's what we do when, when we get talked too much on our report card as a kid, <laughs> but, uh, but I, I stumbled into this. What, what's your background? How did you end up in this space? You know, I actually kind of stumbled into it too, because my first career was as a clinical pharmacist. And the honest reason why I became a clinical pharmacist was for money reasons. I grew up pretty poor uh, in the Korean newspaper. I'm Korean. So in the Korean newspaper, it would talk about how it's one of the most stable careers, right? Six figure salary right out of graduation and all that kind of stuff. So that's why I did it. And then, yeah, I just kind of stumbled into the science. That was the unique advantage I had. It's just like mm. after I became a clinical pharmacist, I eventually quit. I went this whole journey down different transitions, right? I was doing filmmaking for a while. And then it came full circle. I stumbled onto neuroscience. First of all, like, hold on. We're not going to just shorten that. You did a yeah. whole bunch of other things. You said pharmacist and then filmmaker. <laughs> what other magic were you doing during that time? Yeah. So I was I was toying with filmmaking. I was making films for friends and stuff. And then, you know, I have a, like, a sense of humor. So it was like funny and all that kind of stuff. And people <laughs> loved it. So then friends started asking me to make little short films for their weddings and stuff like that. And at, at that time, YouTube was pretty young. Like it was pretty new. And one amazing thing it was doing is it was giving other communities a platform. So Asian Americans being one of them. So it's very easy to get your content in the front page. So that's why a lot of YouTube influencers are Asian. I don't know if if you've ever seen that. Like there's a lot of Asian YouTube influencers out there. So anyway, I reached out to one of those influencers, started talking. And this one group that was growing pretty big, basically, long story short, invited me to join the team. So that's when I... That's when I transitioned into filmmaking, asked my wife, what do you think about going on a two month long cross country road trip for two months and moving to LA? So we packed up our bags from New York city and moved to LA, Uh, got a lot of exposure. So we worked with celebrities. I spearheaded a project with Jeremy Lin, who's the first Asian American NBA basketball player. Love Jeremy. We're a big basketball fan, big Lin fan. (laughs) So got to do stuff like that. Multiple pieces got picked up by TV. So this indirectly taught me about marketing. Mm. And I quickly realized oh, the act of filmmaking is not what I'm in love with because the biggest project I worked on got 24 million views online now, right? So 
and it took me seven months to edit it. Mm-hmm. So for mm-hmm. all of the editors out there, like so much respect. <laughs> it's all a the ton editors. of respect. Because yeah. in the early days when I had to edit, I was like, one of the first things I'm going to delegate yeah. is editing. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. I didn't realize how intensive it is. So that's when how I stumbled into the neuroscience was I'm sitting there at one point because uh, I ran out of money, right? Because we were all living off our savings and I tail between my leg, went back to pharmacy for a little bit, got promoted and all that kind of stuff. And I remember sitting there going like, what is it that I like so much? I realized it's the storytelling. Why do we like to sit in a room, a dark room for two hours at the movie theater to essentially be told a story? Mm-hmm. It's because every powerful story has a story about amazing personal transformation. And I think we all crave that. We all crave to grow. And that's when the question came up. It's like, can you make this happen in real life and not just in the movies? And that's when my healthcare background came full circle. I'm like, oh my goodness. If some people just understood the basic brain science behind how we operate, it's transformative. And the problem was everyone who talks about it, it's very jargony. It's very academic. So because of my filmmaking experience, I was like, oh, I developed this skill. How do you take an idea that can be shared? Because we had multiple viral pieces. And I just applied it to my work. And then that's when I started writing. That's when the viral article happened with my writing. I just applied the same skills from my filmmaking days to my writing. Yeah. Yeah. Now, how did you understand or like, what was the aha moment when you realized, oh my gosh, like this brain is all powerful. And like you said, cause I feel the exact same way. Anybody who reads anything that I put out or hears my voice talking about this stuff that is like, to me, I love, this is an endearing term. It's very nerdy, right? I love talking nerdy, but to your point, it's like, but my goal is to help people who may not have studied this, be able to understand and apply it. And, and it was a personal transformation for me. What really was that aha moment for you? We were like, oh, this is the thing that I'm going to pour into and be passionate about and use my gifts to help others understand. But was there a moment where you're like, oh, wait, the brain. That's the starting point. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I had this moment of like just going through all of the science and realizing there's some really simple things to understand. Yeah. And that's when I decided like, this is my mission I've developed because I didn't realize communicate, like you said, communication explanation is being able to explain something well is a skill like that yeah. you can learn. So that big aha moment for me was just sitting there and having a moment going, oh my God, if you really think about it, Every amazing thing that exists in this world is a product of our brains. Like somebody's brain created it. Somebody to sit there and go, hmm, I wonder what it would be like, taste like if we smash up some tomato sauce, put it on some dough and bake it in the oven and put some mozzarella cheese and call it pizza. Like somebody created it. And it all, it's all, a. this is the most powerful technology in the world that everyone has access to. It's our brains. And I'm sitting there going, it's ironic because it's not like you're born with an instruction manual right. on how to maximize the performance. So that's when I decided I'm like, okay, that's when I'm going to bring all of my skills together, try to explain this in a way that's easy to understand. And that was the skill. It's like, it's not sexy. Neuroscience right. isn't sexy. If you go to someone and be like, Hey, you want to talk neuroscience for two hours? They'll be like, <laughs> unless you're uh, saying that to me, I'd be like, Oh yeah. <laughs> right. And I realized that's a skill. How do you make something sexy? Right. So like when I was doing the media stuff with the filmmaking, that was the, that was the goal. How do you make empathy sexy? Mm Because when you talk Mm -hmm. about it to people, it's not like dinner table topic and it's a skill and they succeeded. They're at like 7 million subscribers today. Right. The group that I worked with. So that's kind of what I realized. I decided to use my communication marketing skills that I've developed over the years and just shout it from the rooftops of life. And, and, and transition it to teaching people human skills and mental skills that we don't learn along the way. And unfortunately, I mean, listen, 
we all are doing the best we can with what we can, right? And our parents did the best they could with what they had. Exactly. But I truly believe we are part of this healing generation because now that we have more access to this information and we have people like you, like myself, we're all a part of this good army trying to get this information out there. I know that I'm an optimist just by nature, but I'm even more of an optimist now because I think when more people tap into this infinite power of the brain, we will be able to do so much more good because we will know how to deal with those limiting factors inside of ourselves, right? And those are usually the things that get in the way most. All these external factors, we can manage that once we get our mind right. But up until this point, I think in humanity, we have focused so much on the external factors, but those who have been able to tap into that inner power are the ones who are accelerating their growth. And I'm not just saying in a way that the world views success, I'm saying even in their personal fulfillment and their inner peace. 100%. I mean, I've watched relationships get you know, thriving because of this. I've watched leaders be able to perform even at a higher level. And yes, like trauma is getting healed. I'm watching yeah. people let go of traumas, like even after going to years of therapy. Yes. And then it's not a problem anymore because that is how plastic your brain is. It does have a capability. It's just, we just need the right tools and information and education. Right. And that's right. kind of what I realized was so powerful because I'm not to you know, poke fun at academics, but a lot of academics just like talking about this stuff, right? right? Yeah. But not making it relatable yeah. and applicable for the average person. So that's kind of what became my mission because I, I had this bridge now. I, I've learned marketing, business, entrepreneurship. And then there's this other side of me that's the science geek, right? And I was just like, how do you bring this together? And that's kind of what I've been doing. And it's been working. Yeah. But that's what's really <laughs> exciting about it. And what was one of the first skills? Because, you know, dear listener, we're not telling you anything that we're not living out ourselves. I don't even think you could do that. I mean, you could try to, but it's not, I don't think it would have the same depth if you just try to teach somebody than if you teach them from also that personal lived experience. So yes. for you, what was one of the first mental skills that you started to build and be more intentional about once you learned about the power of neuroplasticity? Yeah. It's being able to see the things that you don't see, meaning awareness. So that was the first skill, you know, one of the ways I like to explain it, cause you know, mindfulness is, is becoming a, it has become such a hot topic. Mm -hmm. um, but the way I like to explain it from a perspective of science is just like, look, your, your attention is a muscle, just like you can get your body stronger. Your attention is a muscle. You can flex. If I tell you, look to the left side of the room, now look to the right side of the room. You consciously did that. That's proof that it's a muscle you can flex on where you pay attention to. So the thing is our brains tend to pay attention to all of these things that usually aren't true, right? And whether it's a perspective about life, whether it's a belief, a thought, the list goes on. And it's just building the skill of awareness of being able to see what's actually true and not true. And that's kind of the, the rabbit hole that I went down because, you know, it can, it can kind of sound woo a little bit, right? Yeah. Uh, which is fine. But that, that was the first thing that I realized. The first thing I became aware of was, oh my God, the brain is that simple, where your brain exists in only one of two areas. You can only be in one of two states at any given time. That was the big aha for me. I'm just like, okay, this people can understand, right? Like I don't need to go into all the, all the anatomy of the brain and stuff, but this people can understand that you're only in one of two states, any given time, it's one or the other. So you're either in what I call a survival state. This is when your brain feels threatened. The point of it is when your life is actually in danger. Like if mm -hmm. a, a tiger is in front of you about to eat you, you need to be in the survival state because the key quality of a survival state is your brain is reacting without thinking. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You see what I'm saying? Like it yep, needs to react yep. without thinking because if you start thinking, you might die. 
This is why if you walk down a road, you see a snake before you even tell your body to jump away, your body will jump away. It mm-hmm. reacts without thinking. So the, the problem with this state in everyday life is the parts of your brain that has capabilities of creativity, empathy, critical thinking, problem solving skills. You're not accessing it. So that's the thing with survival state because you're in a reactive mode. The amazing part of your brain that has these also, both are amazing capabilities, right? To be able to do this, to keep you alive. But the executive state, which I, I think it's much more sexy, right? Is that's where your creativity, your intuition, all this amazing stuff comes from. And that's your frontal lobe in, in the front side of your brain, which humans have the largest proportion. So it's 40% of your brain, your frontal lobe. And these amazing capabilities come from there. Your emotional regulation, it, the list is big. Of all yeah, the things yeah, yeah, yeah. So like self-awareness, willpower, self-awareness, all of that. Yeah, yeah, creativity. All, all of that, that is there. Mm-hmm. So, but here was the big problem. Based on all the research I'm doing, I'm like, oh my goodness, we're in the survival state for mm. an alarmingly majority of our adult life. Meaning we're not accessing our leadership skills, our empathy, our intuition, our creativity, like we're not accessing that to the fullest of our capability. So that was the big aha moment for me going, oh my gosh, this is the thing that we need to spread awareness about. Because if we're not aware of it, we're going to continue living in it. Does that make sense? Yeah. So one thing I know, and I I like to tell all my audiences, and I think this is another, it's like a practical piece of knowledge that once you understand it, you're like, oh, that makes sense. And I can do something about it. So to your point, your thoughts are really just that focal point of your attention, right? They're not real and you, they are what you are focusing on. And if you are focusing on, for example, as you just mentioned, like I'm in survival mode and you notice all you're doing and everything that, cause everything starts with a thought, the job that you're in started with a thought, the person you're with started with a thought, right? All of this. So if all you're thinking about is I have to survive consciously and subconsciously we'll say, because that's your programming. That is what you're focusing on. Your thoughts are towards that. But if you wanted to move into this state that is more in flow, right? It's more yes. creative. It's more, then all you're doing again is changing your attention. You're shifting your attention to these new behaviors, environments, people that will foster that, right? And, and even just the thought cycles that you're focusing on. But it takes, you have to have awareness to be able to build awareness. And, but every time that you do this, it's what I like to call, tell my audience, it's a rep, right? It's practice. The more you get these reps in, especially early on, the more you're building that muscle, whatever it is, the, the muscle of focus, the muscle of gratitude, the muscle of resilience, whatever that mental muscle is. So were there any little exercises that you were doing to get those reps in to build your awareness early on? Yeah. So if I were to start from square one, the first thing that was transformative for me around awareness is what does survival even actually look like? Oh, like for you, you mean, or were you thinking like generally general, speaking? In general mm-hmm. speaking, mm-hmm. because I'm sitting there going, oh my gosh, we're in survival for 70% of our adult life on average based on the research because of, because of the stress response. Cause I'm sitting there going, well, why we're not running away from saber tooth tigers every day, yeah. are we, right? <laughs> Why are we in the state so much? And that was the big aha for me. It's just like, oh, we're not surviving from physical threats. We're also surviving from emotional threats, meaning these feelings that don't feel good. So I'm sitting there realizing that going, oh my God, that makes so much sense. Because if you ask yourself, how often do you feel anxious? How often do you feel scared, Mm -hmm. upset, frustrated, stressed? All these feelings that feel uncomfortable, your brain actually tries to survive from the feeling. Why? Because there's research that shows emotional pain can be just as painful as physical pain. Absolutely. I mean, because your brain doesn't know the difference between something that's physical or something that's something that's in your physical space or something that's in your mental space. There uh, there's, yeah, there's actual neuroscientific proof of this now that your brain doesn't know the difference between imagination and reality. So 
that's the first thing I needed to become aware of. And I'm going, oh, okay, that makes sense. So then what am I not seeing that I keep being in survival for so much of my life? Mm. So I had to study that. I'm just like, okay, so what does the brain do when it's in survival? It only knows how to do one of three things, fight, flight, freeze. But what was fascinating for me was, you know, it's really obvious if you're actually in a life threatening scenario, what the fight, flight, freeze looks like. So if a tiger's in front of you about to eat you, how do you fight? You might try to pick up a weapon and try to defend yourself. That's a fight response. Or you might run for your life in flight. That's flight. And what's freeze? Freeze is playing dead. Um, There's animals whose predators like to eat their food alive. So playing dead is a defense mechanism. Maybe if I play dead, the threat will go away. Humans do this too, right? So the part that I had to become aware of was, okay, if fight, flight, freeze is the only thing that the brain does when it's in fear and stress and survival, what does it look like in everyday life? This was the big aha for me. Like this was the first point of awareness for me that I always bring every client through. Like just use your attention muscle, right? To just bring attention to what survival looks like. Fight in everyday life when you're surviving from an emotion can look like the more obvious ones can look like anger, right? Like when you're getting defensive, someone said something hurtful and you're getting defensive. Now you're fighting back and now it becomes no one's empathetic because you can't be empathetic when you're in survival. So, you know, we know how those arguments usually end. We've all been in them. No judgment around it. Road rage, right? I'm from the East Coast. Uh, if you see someone get cut off and they flip their lid, yeah. now they're trying to cut the other person back off without any consideration of the other cars around them or the danger that they might be putting them in because empathy's turned off, right? Because mm-hmm. your ego got hurt. So that's fight response. The thing I found to be eye-opening is the more subtle responses. So with fight, I I realize a lot of my entrepreneurs and my leaders I work with, they have major fight. Um, So what does that mean? It could look like the need to be right. That's a fight Mm. response because we have a meaning attached to what it means to be wrong. Maybe we got shamed for it, rejected for it. So we're afraid of being wrong and we fight to be right. Does that make sense? Or it taps into something that is an inner belief that we don't feel like we're good enough. So we have to prove that we're good enough. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone, everyone has their own fight responses. So that's, that's a classic example of fight. The more subtle ones is overworking. The need to prove yourself to someone, because why do you have the need to prove yourself unless what you already believe about yourself is you're not enough, not good enough. You see what I'm saying? Not so working hard enough. Whole, yeah. Not working hard enough. Mm-hmm. Um, perfectionism is another example of that. I stress this point a lot to people because this is one of the things I found to be really eye-opening for a lot of people. Because I'll give an example. I had a client once, and he was sitting there, and I'm going over the fight, flight, freeze response, and he's sitting there. He's in his 60s, and he accomplished everything you could imagine. He has the multi-million dollar business, the beautiful house, everything. And he's going, why am I still feeling unfulfilled? And he's sitting there going, oh my God, I spent my whole life fighting. And mm. I'm like, interesting. Tell me more. What do you mean by that? He's like, well, I always fought to prove to people that I'm better than my older brother <laughs> because he was an NFL football player. And he was sharing with me that when he was a teenager, his football coach literally said, don't try. You're never going to be as good as him. I mean, that obviously is going to make someone fight. If you feel like you're living in someone's shadows because exactly. you're fighting to be seen, you're, Oh yeah. my gosh. And it always leads to a lack of fulfillment and burnout. Absolutely. Cause it's this feeling of, I climbed the mountain that I mm-hmm. thought I wanted to climb. And then when your eyes get open and you become aware, mm-hmm. going, Oh man, I climbed the wrong mountain. Yeah. And here I am. Here I am like 10 years, 20 years, 30 years later, it always leads to a lack of fulfillment and burnout. And the problem with the fight mode, though, because people argue with me, like I had a, I had a debate with the client. He's, um, he was like, he, he, he was pretty well accomplished too and all that good stuff. And he was just like, no, you need survival sometimes, don't you? And I'm just like, not unless your life's in actually in danger. He's like, mm-hmm. well, I hit rock bottom, ran out of money. My second wife left me. 
because she cheated on me. And the first wife did the same thing too. I still had to pay $2,000 plus of child support per month. And I, that was the moment that I had to fight. I had to keep my head down and my shoulder up. And I was bashing through brick wall to brick wall to get to where I'm at today because he achieved a lot of success. And I was just like, okay, that's, that's a fair perspective. And I was just like, without saying what should have, could have, would have happened because past is the past. I'm just doing it as a thought exercise. What if, if you learn how to get into your executive state, like as a muscle, even if it's for just a moment, you're able to lift your head up and put your shoulders down. And what if the thing you realize is those brick walls that you felt cornered into having to break through were only three feet wide? Oh my gosh. Meaning what if there were so many other options? And this is where that saying comes from, doesn't it? To work smarter, not harder. Yep. So we we literally can't think when we're in fight mode. Mm -hmm. So how many of us feel like we're stuck because we're working so hard? Why aren't things working? Mm -hmm. It's probably because of that fight survival state, if that makes sense. So when you're... This is very toxic when you're a leader operating from that because there's a lot of leaders operating in this fight mode, right? They're Absolutely. busy. Hustle culture doesn't help at all, right? You should be working your 80 hours a week. Um, so neurologically speaking, I realize how how much this screws people over. Yeah. So yeah. I, I talk about that one a lot because I just found it to be a very common one for entrepreneurs and leaders. Yeah. The flight response to become aware of, the more obvious ones are things like procrastination, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's a fear of what will people think of me if I do this right now? Or what if I make a mistake? Or whatever limiting belief that you're operating from. Mm-hmm. So a self-soothing mechanism is to hold off from doing it. So that's procrastination. Uh, sometimes it's literally fleeing, right? You might see an ex-partner you don't want to see. <laughs> you're running away from them. Or you see the boss you don't like in the hallway and you turn around, right? Like <laughs> kind of like avoiding them. That's a flight response. Um, the more subtle ones is when we numb ourselves, when we intentionally distract ourselves. I have to preface this, no judgment around any of it. We all have our numbing mechanisms, okay? It's a protection mechanism. Some people like to binge watch television, Netflix. Some people like to eat a tub of ice cream. Some people overindulge in things like alcohol, sex, drugs, to the point of addiction. It's just bringing awareness. Like, this is a flight response. We're fleeing from some sort of uncomfortable feeling we don't like feeling. So that's a flight response, examples of flight response. And then there's freeze. Freeze is when it usually looks like inaction, Uh, Some of the more obvious ones, it's comedic. It's like when you get caught in a lie, you know how your eyes open wide up, open wide, and you're just frozen. It's your brain going, hey, play dead right now. Pretend you don't (laughs) exist. Maybe this person will stop interrogating you. you. (laughs) Maybe they'll stop bothering you. But the irony is it's you're clearly showing that you're guilty of the lie (laughs) when you're doing that, right? So that's a classic freeze response. The more subtle ones are things like, you know, you wake up in the morning, you don't want to get out of bed. Usually happens when you're overwhelmed. You don't want to make a decision. You're so frozen in fear. And then, you know, a lot of freeze also happens when it's trauma. Like you're dissociating from the moment and you just numb and freeze. Mm -hmm. So that's fight, flight, freeze. And when I explain that to people, they're sitting there going, that's like my whole life. (laughs) And I'm like, yeah. So flex your attention muscle and make it a game. See how much fight, flight, freeze you can identify. You mm-hmm. see that person get cut off on the road. Oh, there's the fight response there. That person's going into survival state. And when you become aware of that, you have this like eye-opening experience. You've just been brought out of the matrix. You can see what's real. Yeah. How much survival exists in the world. And you have to have, you know, a, a courageous heart to do this work. It's messy. Yes. It shows you parts of yourself that you may not be proud of, or you know are you know, holding you back and now you're, you're choosing to face it. So I'm just saying for anybody who does start this journey, just be gentle with yourself, right? One thing that you will hear us say, you heard Dr. Eugene say it a couple of times. I definitely say this is as you are learning your thought life and you are building a better relationship with your, with your mind, then it's so important for you to do this objectively and not from a space of judgment. 
And it's, and again, it's very hard because we're the closest person to ourselves, right? We hear all of this mess, but I love how you give this example of just notice it. Yes. At first, just notice it because by noticing it, you're building that awareness. You're building your, first of all, your attention muscle, but you're also building awareness of those things that you do want to tend to, that you do want to maybe heal or grow or change and transform. So I agree. The first reps that I would encourage everyone to do, I do encourage is to build awareness, build awareness of your thoughts, notice it. But I like how you very specifically said, build awareness of your survival response. Yes. You know, because when you do that, when you're, when you're really honed in on that, then you are being more careful about your response because you'll be able to notice your initial reaction. You can't change things unless you become aware of it. I always give this example. Like if you have a piece of broccoli stuck in your teeth, you don't have the power to remove it until it comes into your awareness. Someone has to point it out to you or you see it in the mirror, right? It's the same thing if you want to change yourself, your bad habits or whatever things that aren't serving you. It's the same thing. And I love that you brought that up that don't judge because guess what? Judging is a fight response too. Mm. It's the same reason why people gossip, Mm. right? I carry an insecurity. So I feel the need to fight and put that person down to try to make me feel better about myself. This is why we judge. This is why we gossip. So this is why without judgment, just notice. And at some point you're going to go, you know what? I'm noticing this enough that I don't want to react in the same way anymore. And then you might actually change the response when you choose. Absolutely. Absolutely. One of the big things I love talking about, and and again, it's just a piece of knowledge that I feel like needs to be shared more often. We need to normalize these conversations from so many angles, but you've talked about this a lot. And it is that, that we all have this powerful part of the brain. I call it the CEO of our brain, which is the prefrontal cortex, which is where all of these executive functions are coming from. But what we need to do and get better at, and that's why we're talking about developing very specific mental skills so that you can access that executive part of your brain is we need to acknowledge that when you are early on, how do you start to leverage some of these skills that are not strong, that, you know, you haven't built up that bicep in a way where you can lift a whole car, what have you, right? You know, you're mm-hmm. like, I'm, I'm early on in this. And one piece of information that I have seen be an eye opener for folks is they're saying, okay, but how do I get there? Because I know that this is my initial response. I've learned that it's fight or flight or freeze or what have you, but our emotions are so big that our default response will always be the first one that pops to our mind because the emotions have taken the the prefrontal cortex offline, right? So what you're going to initially feel is that autopilot response, the one you have been using for 20, 30, 40, 50 years, right? And, And again, keep this in mind, folks, like when we talk about how you create these new habits and specifically in neuroplasticity, and we're talking about these new neural pathways, if you were to think of your pathways that are currently formed in your brain, they would be like a five lane highway, right? You could go so fast down there, there would be nothing in your way. And as you try to form these new habits and these new responses and these new belief system, you have to have repetition to create those new neural pathways. Um, but it's kind of like a dirt road. <laughs> so right. it's very hard for, you know, you, you ha- it takes some work, but early on. So just taking it back to the very first time that somebody may be implementing some of these changes or trying to find new habits, how do you encourage folks to notice maybe that their, their right side is overpowering their, their logical side, or are there any exercises that you help people to, to leverage when they're early on trying to figure out how do I get my prefrontal cortex back online? 
Yeah, hundred percent. So there's, I categorize it into two things. So it's short-term work and long-term work, right? Mm -hmm. The short-term work is kind of like the question you're asking. It's just like, if I notice this, what are some tools or tips that I can use to try to help me get out of survival? Two easy things I always recommend that you can do anytime, anywhere. Number one is labeling your emotions. Like I'm feeling sad. I'm feeling anxious. I'm feeling the reason why this works is because UCLA, I'll give an example why, like UCLA did this study where they had a group of people, brain scans tied to their head, and they'd show you uh, photos of people's faces in survival. So like anger, frustration, fear, anxiety. And as soon as they show the photo, the survival state brain immediately activated the amygdala, right? And what was interesting though, the research was like, can you share with me what emotion you're seeing on the photo? And they're like, oh, that's easy. That's anxiety. That's frustration. The moment they named the emotion, guess what happened? Survival state brain turned off executive state brain turned on. Why? Because to label something, it requires you to think about it, doesn't it? So you're literally calling on your prefrontal cortex where your emotional regulation skills come from whenever you're labeling things. So this is something I encourage clients to do all the time. Just label that emotion because neurologically speaking, you're calling on your executive brain to turn on. Is there, could you do this in a way where, excuse me for interrupting, but no, if somebody good. says I'm angry, they're owning that, right? They're, it's, that's going to be fired up. The amygdala is going to be fired up. But if somebody slightly changed their language and said, I feel angry. That's exactly it. Yeah. So okay. I, a clinical psychologist friend of mine was talking to me about this. And I was just like, this is a subtle yet important difference on how you phrase the feeling. Because mm. I am angry. I'm angry. It's you're like you're saying, it's your, I, that, right? you're saying it's your identity. Just like I can say, I am Eugene. You're saying, I am angry. I'm the emotion. But that's not true. When you're saying, I feel angry. You're acknowledging it's a feeling because we know feelings aren't permanent. We know feelings come and go. Well, because because feelings come and go, right? Sometimes you're happy, sometimes you're sad, sometimes feelings sometimes are. Sometimes you're permanent. both at the same time. Sometimes you're both at the same time. Yeah, exactly. So just to be able to acknowledge that as a tool, I found it to be super helpful. Where clients tell me it's just like, oh, I didn't realize such a simple thing works, and it does for them when they're going, yeah, I'm feeling mad, and they're like, I feel better after, <laughs> right? I'm like, yeah, you know, there's something actually happening in your brain when you're doing that. So that's one easy tip. The second easy tip is the one that's widely used, right? It's the breath. So there's two styles of breathing that I recommend. One's called box breathing. It's the five second inhale, the five second uh, holding your breath, and then five second exhale. Uh, the second type of breathing that I uh, recommend too, it's fascinating. It's like a deep inhale and you do another deep inhale and a nice slow exhale. Uh, Andrew Huberman, he's a neuroscientist from Stanford. Like yeah, I love Andrew. Showing, His work is great. Yeah, you're showing these live scans of people when they're breathing that way. You're literally watching the body relax because what you're doing is the bottom of your lungs have these parasympathetic nerves, which is the part of your nervous system that helps you relax and calm down and recuperate and heal. It's telling your body like, hey, we're not about to die. You can calm down because you know your breathing gets really shallow and it feels threatened. So those are two like quick things that I recommend to people just as an everyday tool. And yeah, like that's kind of what I've been diving deep into the world of how do you train more and more people to be able to learn more ways to do this? Because it's crazy at the at how powerful this stuff is, like you said. Yes. I mean, again, human skills, <laughs> Yeah, human skills that are quite practical when you think about it. You just said that, you know, I could essentially bring myself off of a ledge of pure anger and a huge, you know, rage by taking some breaths by changing my language around how I feel. Mm -hmm. And I remember when I first started getting into this work, I'm not going to lie. I was a little weary. I was a little weary about sharing yeah. what, and, and part of it was because I had the lived experience without having the language or the knowledge to be able to explain what happened to me. Then because I was obsessed with what I was feeling and the, how things were changing, 
I started to look for that. That's how I started to stumble into, you know, positive psychology, neuroplasticity and, and, and so on. And, and really just studying the human mind. Right. So as I started to learn these things and I realized, okay, again, these are, these are really practical. There are small things that we can do. One of the biggest ahas for me was that it works for everyone. Yes. Period. Full stop. Now I will acknowledge that it's going to be different for everyone, just as everything is different for everyone. So we can tell you this is a seven step process, but it may take you, you know, longer to go through a seven step process. Or for you, you might get there in four steps, or for you, you may repeat some and it takes you 12, whatever. The point is that every single one of our brains, for those of us who have full function of our brain, and, and even if you have an imbalance in chemicals and hormones, the good thing is that this could still work for you. And that's the part that gave me the confidence to share is really understanding that this is not woo woo. It sounds like it at first it does, but when you hear how practical some of these simple reps can be, and then you start to feel the difference, you become an instant believer because your life becomes the evidence that this is real. <laughs> yes. hundred percent. I think kids need this. I wish that we were this teaching this. I'm teaching my son. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. If anybody hears this, have you heard them say, how can I teach my kid? Yeah. All the time. All the what time. You learn at school, you learn math and English. No one teaches you emotional regulation, self-regulation, emotions, how they're made, what it's doing. And and this is why I'm shining from the rooftops about this kind of stuff, because, you know, number one, what's amazing is it creates a language that we can speak. So the community I built is just like, yeah, I went into fight mode. I went into flight mode here. I went, I'm like, great. Like we're at least having a conversation about it so that you can be aware of it. And you know, what was amazing though, it's just like, I agree with you. If we were able to start some of this education early on, can you imagine what our future would look like? More empathetic people. Which is why I have hope for a better future because more people who are learning and applying it are, they, once you get it, of course you want to share it with your kids. Yeah. Yeah. And so like, this was game changing for me. You know what the most liberating thing was though? It's that people think, oh, I'm stuck in this. Like, Mm -hmm. it's just a habit of mine. I can't get over it. Right. But what, what the liberating thing about that is, it's just like, well, if you look at the science behind it, like where we get stuck into our negative thinking and all of that, it stems from a belief. So what does that mean? It means at some point in your life, you had an experience, you attach a meaning to the experience and your brain, there's a saying in neuroscience, neurons that fire together, wire together, right? Mm -hmm. So if you keep looking at it from that perspective over time, it just becomes your reality. Like it feels so real because you... Mm -hmm. Just like a habit, you're not going down the stairs going, I need to put my left foot forward, right foot forward, left. You just do it without thinking. The same applies to beliefs about yourself. I'm not good enough. You might you might have seen your parents struggle with money. So you might have formed the belief money is hard to make. And then your brain forms that bias. It's it stems from something called your reticular activating system, where it's the same experience. Why, you know, if you wanted a car, you're on the road next day, you see that car. It's not that there's more cars there. It's just because your brain's paying attention to where the intention is. Your attention is a muscle it can flex. You pay attention to that thing so many times, it just becomes natural as second nature. So imagine that. It's just like everything stems from a belief. How are beliefs formed? Between zero to seven years old, we're born with 100 billion neurons in our brain and only about 20 billion synaptic connections between them. This is why we can't do much as a baby, right? Can't talk, can't walk. But between zero to seven, by the time you're seven, you have the same hundred billion neurons, but now you have quadrillion synaptic connections. That's 15 zeros, the number. What's happened? Your brain is rapidly connecting and recording information. 
But what most people don't realize is you're also recording meanings of experiences, right? If you get bit by a dog at four years old, the meaning you might give it is all dogs are dangerous. I have a funny story about that. Yeah. I hate cats. <laughs> hate cats. And I thought it was because I was allergic. And my mom reminded me that when I was three years old, a cat attacked me. And I forgot exactly. that. <laughs> exactly. And then your brain, the reticular activating system, decides only to focus on that information, which, yeah. by the way, your brain filters out basically around 88% of information at any given moment. Your brain needs to do that. Otherwise, you'd be too overstimulated at all the information around you. So imagine that. That's how our realities get created. And then we form the patterns of thinking. We think 70,000 thoughts a day, 90 to 95% of those thoughts, same thoughts every day. So the way to view this is there's nothing wrong with you. It's not because you're stupid. It's not because you're incapable. It's not because you're not good enough. It's simply your brain got programmed. Just like you can program a computer to do the same thing every day and automate that your brain gets programmed with certain perspectives, certain thoughts, all because of your unique life experiences. Experiences, yeah. And by the time you're 35 years old, 90 to 95% of your brain does become subconscious. It's on autopilot. Mm -hmm. So it's just to understand that the thing that, that's the beauty of the science is we can train ourselves to rewire parts of the programming that aren't serving you anymore. Mm -hmm. The thing that keeps you from taking action, the thing that keeps you doing a bad habit, the thing that keeps you in a fight, flight, freeze response, right? Mm -hmm. Numbing yourself and overworking and, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So I don't know, that, that was the big aha for me going, oh, this lets me off the hook. Yeah. It's not that I'm stupid. I just need to learn the skill. Just like you can work out at the gym to get physically stronger, you can work your brain out to get mentally stronger. And that's yeah. kind of, yeah, the rabbit hole I've been going down. And, and, and love how you like pull this back to it's our experiences that, you know, really start to shape us and, and shape the way that our brain sees the world and, and also like use ourselves and our capabilities, which is why I think there's so, we need to put a, a greater emphasis on building these skills comes through creating these experiences, you know, for you to realize like, oh, I, and I'm a recovering perfectionist. Just putting that out there. Everybody in, in my community knows that. And I thank you. I That was a personal aha moment during this, this conversation. It's like, yeah, that is a fight response, right? And interestingly enough, I puff out my chest. Yeah, I'm a fighter. Nothing's going to get me down. Yeah. I can, right? I also honor. rest yeah. very well, just so you know. I'm not always on. <laughs> but, uh, but, but now I see, oh, why, where those parallels live, right? But the point is, in order for me to break out of those tendencies around being trying to be perfect and trying to create a controlled experience so that there's no more, you know, pain or there's less risk or whatever stories we tell ourselves to create these controlled, perfect scenarios. It's more so of allowing myself to be imperfect, creating the experience, right? Where I allow myself to be imperfect. And I see that I'm still okay. I see that I'm still strong. I see that I'm still intelligent. I see that I'm still create, yeah. even if, right. And when you sometimes we have to create those experiences. And sometimes we find ourselves in them. But the point is, is the more you go through these life experiences and you are intentional as you are living through them, you are accelerating your growth in rewiring your brain from the way that you have grown up into this point that you are today, where you decide to flex this new muscle. And so be encouraged, right? I, I hope listeners like be encouraged that you can even curate experiences to start building different mental muscles. And you will find, I, I, well, I should say, I found that once I realized that I was more thoughtful about creating those experiences that felt uncomfortable because I knew they were serving my growth. Yeah, definitely. And 
you know, I can spend all day training and coaching around like how to do all this rewiring work, but there's two things I found that was really critical as prep. The first thing is, is I have to share a quick story if that's okay. Please. To give yes. some context. I got briefly coached by this amazing coach. Her name's Rhonda Britton. And just to give context of her story at 14 years old, her parents were in the middle of splitting up. It was father's day. They were about to go out for brunch. Her and her mom's walking out to the yard. Dad pulls up to the curb in his car, walks over to his trunk, says he's going to grab his coat, doesn't grab his coat, pulls out a shotgun. Really upset at mom, goes over and shoots mom, points the gun at Rhonda. Mom was still alive, so she's screaming, don't do it. Didn't know she was still alive, so dad points the gun back at mom, shoots her a second time, looks at Rhonda, points the gun at himself, pulls the trigger. Mm. 14 years old, murder-suicide. Traumatic event. Wouldn't wish it on anyone. And she went into major survival at that point. How does she fight? She worked hard. She kept her grades up, thinking maybe if I keep performing and working harder, this pain inside of me will go away. How did she flee? Became an alcoholic, fled to alcohol, and she tried to take her own life three times. Suicide is an ultimate form of flight. And how did she freeze? Plenty of dissociative moments, numbing herself when she wakes up in the morning, not wanting to get out of bed. And yet she turned her life around. She became this amazing coach. Uh, she ended up with her own television show in the 90s that won an Emmy Award, a reality coaching series. And she's been on Oprah not once, but two times. And I share that story because she said something that really shook me to my core. She said, until you're willing to be wrong about everything you know, nothing will ever change. Mm. And I'm highlighting the word willingness. I'm not saying I'm not here to preach everything you know is wrong, right? I'm highlighting the word willingness because until we're willing, change will not happen. Because Rhonda was willing to be wrong about certain thoughts and beliefs and perspectives that life sucks. No one's out. No one's there for me. Life is hard. She was willing to be wrong about it. And that's the thing that started the journey of transformation, if that makes sense, right? Yeah. So the moment you're willing, then what you can do next is you need to be willing to take full ownership. And this is such a yes. cliche word, right? In, in the business space and like personal development space. And I have to give context of this as a parent. When, I, when my daughter was three years old, I would say this phrase to her, right? In survival, when she's not listening to me, I would say, you're making me so mad right now. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. I would say phrases like that. And now that I do all this brain work, I'm sitting there going in the moment of self-reflection because you kind of have to eat your own words and your own teachings. Yeah. Sometimes, right. So I'm trying to self-reflect. I'm just like, huh, I got really angry there. And I know when I'm angry, it has nothing to do with what's happening. It has everything to do with what's happening inside of me. Right. So I'm just like, I'm sitting there going, how might a little girl interpret my words? Well, number one, I'm she's being told that she's making me angry. So in her world, reality might get created that, oh, I can be the cause of someone else's emotions, which is not true. And I'm going to prove it to you. Why? And number two, whoa, daddy's very mad. <laughs> that feels very scary. And when he's mad, it feels like he doesn't love me. So therefore it can turn into a neural network of a fear of making people mad, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. So I'm afraid of making people mad. So you know what really held me accountable? I'm sitting there going, how might this affect her as an adult? Mm -hmm. What happens if she has that over that unethical boss that overworks her? Because she's mm -hmm. afraid of making the boss mad, she'll give in and work, even though it's sacrificing her mental health and probably her physical health too. Mm -hmm. And you know what really got me? I was just like, oh my gosh, what if she ends up in a relationship one day, maybe with some boy yeah. and he's pressuring her to sleep with them and she doesn't mm -hmm. want to. Mm -hmm. And because she's afraid of making the boyfriend mm -hmm. mad, She'll give in and not hold their boundaries. You see what I'm saying there? People pleasing. Uh, uh, yes, a... because I'm a parent. I have definitely <laughs> self-evaluated every time that I fell right on my place and did not do what I needed to. <laughs> people pleasing is a fight response. Yeah. You see yeah, what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah, to people yeah. please. So th that might be a survival mechanism. So that one really got me. And I was just mm -hmm. like, oh my God. So the best of my ability to a three-year-old girl, I'm like, baby girl, you can never make anybody <laughs> mad. 
if that's daddy's fault, because I know I had my junk with my dad leaving behind our family when I was a teenager, I was very sensitive about being perceived as a bad father because I used to hold a lot of resentful thoughts. Like if I'm ever a dad, I'm never going to be a bad dad like him. So what's my brain doing the moment my daughter's not listening? Hey, you're being mm. a bad dad. So fight, right? Uh, anger is a fight response. So anyway, and I'm like, if daddy or mommy ever yells at you, you have every right to request that we please stop yelling at you. So I'm trying to teach your boundaries in that moment. And ownership is the moment I stop using the phrase, you're making me mad. And I change the language to I'm feeling mad. Yeah. So this is a powerful story I share with people because when the CEO on a call tells me my team's pissing me off right now and I share the story, I'm like, tell me again, is it your team that's pissing you off? Yeah. And that's the moment they can take ownership. They're going, okay, I get it. It's not yeah. the team. Yeah. Right. Something I'm doing. I'm interpreting the experience in some way. I'm willing to take ownership over that. Mm -hmm. And that's the moment you become ready to receive actual training. Mm -hmm. And that's the stuff that I do dedicated my life to. It's just like, look, there's ways to do this. You can rewire right? You can, you can see the false meanings that you're giving in your head and you can rewire it and boom, you become a different person. Absolutely. Oh, Dr. Eugene, listen, <laughs> I, I have to say, I am honored to be a part of this army with you. I love the work that I do. And when I connect with other people who are also serving their corner of the world so well, by just making this very important information, practical and applicable for the everyday person. That's our goal. That is our goal is to help you leverage the power that already exists inside of you that you have access to in a way that helps you to get through the everyday stressors and even the epic ones, because that is how you're going to do it is by like flexing these skills and being able to tap into a space that is infinitely <laughs> available. And, and all you got to do is like lean in, lean in. So thank you for your work. Thank you for helping people in a, in a really mighty way. If people are looking to dive deeper and, and they want to like get into your camp and your community, where can they find you? Yeah. So I created a community called Neurohacking School. Uh, so that can be found at neurohackingschool.com. Uh, I bring you through all of this training, all that good stuff. Uh, if you wanted to check that out, or if you wanted to listen to more of my content, I have a podcast. It's neurohackingpodcast.com. And that's where you can find some of my content. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thanks so much for having me. This is fun. This has been In the Details. If you like the show, tell a friend. For more shows like this, go to success.com slash podcasts.